0: Tyra, you guys yeah. We're, we're tired of all code. your bitching out there. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Crazy times we're living in, right? I, I just literally can't believe it, but then I guess I can. <laughs> it felt weird. To be recording when I know that so many people are suffering and dying and crying. <laughs> and it just felt weird to come on the podcast and just talk about random shit. But um, I know a lot of people use TV and movies and Hulu and Netflix and YouTube in order to kind of drown out the awfulness (laughs) of reality. So I hope that I am able to bring you guys content and hopefully it's able to distract you a little bit as I rant about racism. (laughs) So let's get to it. Um, I don't have a kombucha for this episode. I know it's like crazy. Right. But I have drinking all of the ones that I did have and I just felt like it wasn't essential really for me to leave my house in order to get a kombucha. So I just I'm sticking with my my cucumber water. <laughs> I I don't know if anyone else does this, but I, if I have my reusable water bottle, I will still use it even if I'm in the house. I think I'm so used to just filling it up with ice and then, you know, the ice kind of lasts in the in the jar all day. And so then I'll just fill it up with water throughout school. So I'm used to doing that. And now um, I'm, you know, privileged and fancy. So I have one of those refrigerators that makes ice like from the refrigerator. So I'm used to just, I just fill that up now with ice. And then I just refill the water from the refrigerator all day, but I still use my reusable water bottle. And then I realized that I do this all the time. Like even when I go to Kayla's house, I will put, she'll like refill my reusable water bottle up for me instead of like giving me a glass of water because she's like so used to knowing that I'm going to drink out of my reusable water bottle. It's like weird. But anyway, nobody cares about that. But I'm sorry that I don't have a kombucha for this episode. But we can thank Miss Rona. And I'll still be able to give you guys an ASMR of my cucumber water. You guys hear that? There you go. (laughs) It's not as exciting as the sizzle that comes from the kombucha. But you know, Compromising, guys, compromising. And if you guys don't put cucumber in your water, I know people usually recommend that for like some kind of weird health benefits. I don't buy that so much, but I do buy that it tastes way more refreshing than normal water. And sometimes I'll add lemon, but genuinely, I just like cucumber in water. That's just like perfect. And cucumbers are usually like a dollar, like get one seriously, like and put it in your water. It's great. This episode, I asked you guys on Twitter what you guys wanted to hear me rant about today or should I say bitch about today because that's all I do is fucking bitch all day long. Bitch on Twitter, bitch on my podcast, bitch about food. Like that's just, you know, that's kind of my life. Anyways, (laughs) I asked you guys what you guys wanted me to cover today and the number one topic that you guys voted for was thug kitchen and the kind of problematic ties with thug kitchen. So that's what I'm going to be talking about today. So if you've never heard of Thud Kitchen, it's a cookbook that is started by two vegans who were kind of fed up, I guess, with the normal way of writing cookbooks. So they wanted to bring like a lighthearted, funny cookbook that was a little bit more relatable than, you know, the cookie cutter, perfect vegan cookbooks that we see today that require, you know, like you to fucking take a Hair off your asshole and like fucking put it in the ground and grow your own fucking tomatoes and like all that dumb shit. So they wanted to create something that was, I guess, a little bit more relatable to people and you know made people excited about food. So they used to have a blog that I believe was also called Thud Kitchen. Um, I think it was on Tumblr is where it started. So they had multiple different platforms. They had like a Facebook and a Twitter, I I believe, and you know this blog. Through Tumblr, I'm pretty sure, but I know it was a blog for sure. They remained anonymous for, I believe, two years up until the point where they had to Do this book tour, you know, to launch their cookbook. And I have seen them say that they weren't anonymous, but every other news outlet and article and people that I have seen cover this topic have all said that they were pretty much anonymous until it came time for them to do their book tour. So take that information with a grain of salt. And if that information bothers you, you can do your own research and kind of conclude to what you believe to be true for you. And so before I get into the topic. um, Obviously, I... I just want to start off with something that I think is important. I try to with my podcast kind of have an outline where I like to give both sides of opinions so that you are able to form an opinion. And I do this because I think it's so important that we as a society form opinions on topics that are important. And I do see the need for a middle ground. Middle ground helps bring unity and understanding and peace and, you know, tolerance to situations. So there Is a huge need for middle ground and kind of coming to a conclusion that is valid for both parties. I think that that is a very, that's a very important thing to have and conversations to have. But I also think it's important to educate yourself and form an actual opinion, especially when it comes time to talk about things like policy and politics and human rights and just rights in general and and things like that, it's important that we are able to form concrete, not one-sided opinions. I mean, it's not like both-sided opinions, and I do know that that's difficult for a lot of people because staying in the middle kind of helps you stay less hated, and when you actually have to form an opinion, it's a little bit more challenging and anxiety-provoking. So I do understand why people like to have middle ground opinions, but I just want to... Express how important it is that we have strong opinions when it comes to things like racism and oppression and prejudices and stereotypes and stories like police brutality and things like that. I can't stress enough how and I'm not saying like if you're not educated on the topic that you should just pick a side because that's not what I'm advocating for as a (laughs) Taurus. As a Taurus, my Taurus self, I like to be right. I guess that's like a bad trait is like I don't like to be in the wrong a lot of the times. So I am the type of person that does hours and hours and hours of research on things so that I'm not incorrect or I don't come to a conversation talking out of my ass because I don't really like that. And so I do fall like I'm I'm like venting my <laughs> problems on my podcast. I'm just I'm very self-aware of my negative traits. I don't even like to say negative and positive traits. I'm just very aware of my traits in general. I don't think there's negative and positive, but I'm very aware of the things that I should work on as a person. And it's forming strong opinions without having all of the story. But I do think that that is a good quality to have because when you have that middle ground, things don't don't really get done in the middle ground, especially when it comes to policy, which is why I hate when people are like, I'm a centrist or I'm in the center. Or, I don't know. Or I am in the middle because especially when it comes to politics and, you know, forming a policy and doing reform, you need to have a strong opinion so that you can argue that opinion and things can actually get done. Because when you're in the middle ground, things typically do tend to not get done. So basically, this huge rant that I'm going on is because I would like to give both sides an opinion of opinions on my podcast so that you, the listener, are able to form a strong opinion because I do, not even strong opinion, but to form an educated opinion, I guess is more of the word, because I can't stress enough how important it is to research and educate yourself on things that you're ignorant to so that you were able to fight and form an opinion and fight with knowing that you're doing the right thing and not just fighting because everybody is doing it. You should form, you should educate yourself so that you are able to form opinions. So basically I will in this podcast give you both sides of the story. I will definitely, obviously I have a strong opinion, especially on this topic because I've done my research and I've been able to conclude how I feel about the topic, but I will give you the information as unbiased as I, prob- as I possibly can, but you guys have to have some kind of leeway with me because I am a Taurus and my little opinions will slip out. <laughs> but I do, like I said, just please, esp- not even just with this podcast, because I know there's bigger things than thug kitchen i mean there's people dying tyrant (laughs) i understand but it's so important that we have strong opinions especially now going into an election and going into voting it's so important that we educate ourselves on who we're voting for on who we believe in because if we blindly vote for people you are blindly giving your power away to this person that you don't even really know much about anyway let's get into the topic (laughs) Thug Kitchen, like I said, is a cookbook, has come under for a while now for using a lot of black verbiage, a lot of black slang, a lot of african-american community culture things that they would typically say also just using the word thug it's just very offensive to the black community especially so there's a lot of um, controversy between whether the kitchen the cookbook and blog is racist or not and that is kind of what sparked what we're going to get into with this episode today. So a lot of people thought this book was written by two people of color or people of color in general. And like I said, up until the time that they were supposed to do this book tour, as far as I've been able to see, that is when they came out as being white. And a lot of people speculated that they were not white just because of the words and the slang seemed like a form of digital blackface it just seemed like they were black (laughs) i don't know how else to say it like it it, they were kind of giving the persona that they were not two middle-aged white people it seemed like it was written from the perspective of a person of color obviously as you know it's not written by black people of color it's written by two white people and their names are matt and michelle a lot of people and now a lot of people are asking if the kitchen is racist and so let's dissect this I listened to an episode with the creators of The Kitchen. Um, like I said, their names are Matt and Michelle. And the podcast episode that I listened to um, was called Health is Hell. It's the Health is Hell podcast. And because y'all know, I always like to... I always like to hear the bullshit come from the horse's mouth. And I try and I like to and I try to be as unbiased as I can see. You guys saw that. You guys heard that. I I said the bullshit come from the horse's mouth. It's like I am trying to give you guys information in an unbiased way, but my fucking Taurus self won't allow me just to fucking shut up. Anyway, so (laughs) I apologize. (laughs) Let's get into the meat of things. So the host introduced them. (sighs) To, and this is kind of what set the tone of this podcast. And this is what kind of set the tone of this podcast episode for me, because the introduction is very important. The host is very important when you're going to talk about and the ep- the topic of the episode was about, you know, their death threats and their rape threats and their controversy surrounding their book. That's kind of what the. P- title of this podcast was implying that they were going to talk about. So clearly they were going to talk about is the book racist or not, or if the book is problematic. So it was very important to me who the host was going to be because the host kind of sets the tone of the conversation. So the host introduced them as a team that is finally giving vegans a good name. <laughs> and I just feel like that's just kind of biased. I mean, I already know that I guess this podcast host has been on their podcast before so I'm assuming they're friends so I guess I get that but it just it's just even just like as like a journalist or she's not I don't know who she is I don't know if she's a journalist but just like as a person who's going to give your viewers an opinion about these people who are known for controversy I just think that introducing them as finally giving vegans a good name when in fact in the black community and in the in people of color in general and even in you know progressive white people who have looked at this book and been like, no, I just thought it it was interesting to set the tone of how this podcast episode was going to go, because clearly it was going to go in their favor from the beginning. Um, and that's important to keep in mind. And just, you know, like people of color and vegan activists in general that have been doing amazing vegan activism way before, you know, Thug Kitchen and this story has ever come out. It's just it's just interesting that you chose that they are what are finally giving vegans a good name and not the plenty of other vegans that are doing great things that before them that didn't have to appropriate a culture in order to get famous in the first place. It was just interesting how she damn it, I did it again. (laughs) But it's just interesting to see how, you know, that's how she views these two people as changing the way that people view vegans. It's like, yeah, not really. People already view veganism as this white vegans appropriating dishes and food that comes from specifically POC cultures. Anyway, (sighs) sorry. (laughs) So let's get into the backstory of how Thug Kitchen was created and... That will kind of give you a little more understanding of why this book is problematic, in my opinion, and why so many people of color have come out against this book. So, Matt and Michelle are a couple, or a broken up couple. They used to be a couple, but they are now broken up I believe and their names are Matt and Michelle but at the time they were a couple living in the LA area they both kind of hated their jobs and kind of found peace and you know in photography and their food and the food that they were making I believe Michelle was like more of the cook while Matt was more of the photographer it seems to me and I do believe Michelle um, was vegan longer than Matt was. And she kind of encouraged him, you know, to go vegan, it seems, and try out dishes and foods that, you know, were vegan. And Matt kind of described this process of looking into veganism and the different cookbooks and videos and information out there for people transitioning to a vegan diet or lifestyle as being, you know, really boring. And he described it kind of as being like cookie cutter and very serious. And he used the word pastel, I believe, and it just felt like very calculated and perfect. So being the white oppressed souls that Matt and Michelle are living in L.A. together, they just kind of felt like they didn't really belong in the vegan community and they didn't fit in (laughs) with the organic vegan lifestyle. And they just felt like it would be more inviting to have a blog or cookbook that wasn't, you know, so serious, but still encouraged a vegan lifestyle. And to quote them, they just kind of wanted a book or a blog that kind of spoke to normal people. People, because normal people I guess usually use black slang anyway <laughs> I feel like Matt and Michelle kind of appeal to you know the group of people who have crazy work schedules who are working non-stop and they don't have that perfect vegan lifestyle that most cookbooks and blogs portray they described I remember them saying that they suffered a lot from mental health issues and suicide and things like that and they just weren't mentally healthy so their lives were just they kind of appeal to you know the everyday type of people in that way whereas we don't have like these farmhouses with these perfectly cut tomatoes and you know like perfectly cut lemons and you know stuff like that so they were kind of trying to appeal more to everyday average people kind of (laughs) I totally understand that you know desire although I do disagree obviously with their book but that's kind of what started my Instagram blog if you guys don't follow it it's at another junk food vegan and it's full of different recipes and dishes that aren't photographed perfectly and they aren't made and they're made, you know, for real people and don't look so perfect. And that was kind of my inspiration, which was making sure that people didn't come to my blog and see my like perfectly placed basil and think that veganism, you know, was unrealistic or expensive or requires like all of these fancy ingredients. And not that there's a problem with food photography. I totally appreciate vegan blogs and um, that are out there that are able to make vegan food look literally so beautiful and artistic. It's just not realistic for the everyday person, which is what's kind of started and sparked my blog. I just wanted people to be able to come to a place where they can find vegan fast food options, where they can find like vegan options at Walmart that don't look so perfect. And that's kind of what I wanted to appeal to people. So I get that plight of wanting to appeal to make veganism seem a little bit more relatable. It just is a shame that this is the way that it had to play out for them. Because I do think that their goal could have been something really positive and awesome for all cultures and all people if it wasn't so offensive to black people. So Matt and Michelle, the creators again of The Kitchen, felt the same way, you know, as me, and they wanted a blog and a cookbook that wasn't so relatable and didn't seem, you know, like perfect and and unrealistic. So they decided to start this blog, which I, again, believe was on Tumblr and, you know, a Facebook page. And it started off as kind of a joke for them. And they didn't really like take it too seriously. And they didn't, you know, like really promote it or anything like that. And it was just kind of, you know, for them to do in their free time, you know, when they hated their jobs and and like just use their free time just, you know, kind of fuck around and create something and, you know, just do something together, which is cool and awesome to be able to do with your partner. So then someone, I guess, messaged them and told them that, you know, they were on TV or something. And I guess they were on the Gwyneth, Pedro? Patro? Show. I'm like super uncultured. I don't know if I'm even saying that right because I don't think I've ever even seen this person, but I also don't move around much or really leave my house or really know anything. So she could be really famous and I just don't know who she is, but According to Google, her Netflix show, The Goop Lab has like 31% on Rotten Tomatoes and like a 2.3 out of 10 on IMBD. So there's that. Anyway, (laughs) but they credit, they accredit this to actually what changed their life and really helped them get their following grow being on this Gwyneth show. And they kind of sell their journey as like not knowing, you know, how to navigate in this rich world, which a lot of people who gain fame, you know, kind of overnight relate to. I can't, (laughs) but there's that anyway. (laughs) And just something that just really bothers me is that they are pitching this kind of like we're super poor vibe. (laughs) I think Matt says like all their clothes were from Target. (laughs) And which is just like telling (laughs) and it really kind of sets the vibe of the type of people they are, in my opinion. Like if you're complaining because you shopped at Target, like that's very like if you know Target is very expensive, like their clothes are pretty expensive. I mean, as far as I know, when I go into Target, but in like living in in L.A. in general is just very expensive. And I just and I'm not saying that they. I know like in their podcast in the podcast, they were talking about how they didn't have health insurance and they really struggled and they worked a lot and blah, blah, blah. And I'm not saying that they are not poor. It just seems like they're selling this story of being like very oppressed people <laughs> That started this slang cookbook. Anyway, and I just want to preface this right now. And uh, I don't think these people are like awful people. I don't think they deserve death threats or illness or anything like that. This is just purely criticism and compiling different opinions from various different people of color about the book and blog. I don't want people to think that, you know, like I think they're just relatable to Trump or something crazy like they're just these crazy raising racist people I don't really genuinely think they I do think that they profited off of black people I don't know them at all besides that and I do think that speaks a lot to your character and just from what I've seen on this podcast episode it doesn't really seem like they care too much about the fact that that is what is happening. So I mean, I'm not judging them. I don't know them. I couldn't judge them until I met them. But I'm just stating that I don't hate these people or wish them harm or anything like that. Like, I don't think that people should go and like hate them and send them death threats. That's a little that's very, very extreme. But I just wanted to let that be known that I just I don't I'm not saying this for to be hateful. It's purely just criticism. So again, they're on this podcast. Um, It's the health is hell podcast. I have never really heard of this podcast before, but I guess the host has probably never heard of my podcast before. So there's that. (laughs) They go on to say that um, they faced a lot of opposition from, you know, big publishers telling them they can't, you know, swear and that vegan cookbooks don't sell and this and that. And so they described that whole process and how they ended up not going with a publisher that, you know, offered them the most money, but they ended up going with a publisher that allowed them to have a little bit more creative freedom because that's kind of how they built their brand. It was all about, you know, not being perfect and not being cookie cutter and they wanted to swear and use foul language and all of that. So something interesting that stuck out to me while listening to them and they seem like, very delightful down to earth white vegans, you know, is that they go on to speak about how different marketing companies kind of start copying or adopting different things that weren't socially acceptable when they started back, you know, in like 2013, 2014, you know, like swearing and like using different slogans and stuff like that. And they start to kind of see how other bigger companies are able to, you know, capitalize off something that wasn't cool before, you know, like swearing like they did in their book. You couldn't, you know, go on any major network or Twitter or Facebook with ads that, you know, had swearing in it. They started to kind of see how. When other big companies adopted this kind of like vulgar marketing strategy, it worked for them because they had, you know, more power and more privilege and more money and more status to be able to, you know, do this. And I remember Matt saying, you know, that one morning he saw a Carl's Jr. bag at the end of his driveway that said, and Matt is, you know, one of the creators of the kitchen. He said that he went out one morning and saw the, you know, this Carl's Jr. bag at the end of his driveway that said, eat like you mean it. And he was just kind of like, fuck this, you know, like that's that's our slogan, you know, um, because their slogan is eat like you give a damn. And they saw this Carl's Jr. bag that said eat like you mean it. So Matt says that they, you know, are paying attention to what they're doing, you know, what the Kitchen is doing. These marketing teams for these other bigger companies, you know, are paying attention to what other smaller companies are doing, you know, and using that to make money and capitalize off of, you know, smaller businesses, ideas. And we see this all the time with mainstream companies, you know. And I just felt like this perfectly sums up exactly how I feel about their book <laughs> um, and how people constantly watch what black people and especially black women like. Let's be real especially what black women are doing so that they can capitalize off of it and make it into something of their own when they don't actually relate to that culture or that vibe at all. So I just found it ironic or kind of I don't know the word I don't know if ironic is a word, but I just found it, I guess, interesting that they kind of just got a taste of what it's like to be a minority a little bit. I mean, not that they're minorities at all or any I'm not I don't want people to think that I think that they're black or something like I I don't want people to know people like to run away with things that I say. (laughs) But uh, I'm not saying that they're minorities. I'm just saying that they got a little taste of what it's like to be in a minority and have your slang and your verbiage and your everyday perspective capitalized on and mainstreamed. So it's sad that they can't see the same with their book and how it uses verbiage that if it were coming from a person of color, they wouldn't have gotten that import opportunity. Like they have gotten to these thug kitchen creators have gotten on Dr. Oz and Rachel Ray. They wouldn't be New York Times sellers if they were fucking black. <laughs> like it's like, let's just be fucking real. They wouldn't be anywhere where they are today So it kind of segues into the controversy that's wrong with this book. They wouldn't have got these same opportunities if they were black. So kind of moving on to their interview that they that I was watching with them, Matt um, with Matt Michelle, they started to get into kind of the controversy of them being, you know, white and doing digital blackface is what they were being accused of which is not what they called it. They didn't call it digital blackface in the podcast. But I'm telling you that this is what they're talking about. They're talking about if they were using digital blackface. If I'm like they just did. I don't know if they knew that that was what it was called. I'm just saying that like what they're describing in that podcast. I don't want you to go to their podcast and think that they are talking about digital blackface because they didn't actually say that. But what they're describing in the podcast is what Digital blackface is. And if you don't know what digital blackface is, it's like when white people use like gifs and memes and emojis and other images and language of black people, kind of insinuating that they aren't white or that they kind of create this persona of, of their race being questionable. So you get this a lot of time with like the anime community. Sorry, y'all, I'm not coming for you, but <laughs> you get this a lot with like the anime community where a lot of the times people hide behind different profile pictures of like different anime cartoons or just like video games and like different other movies and stuff like that where people hide behind profile pictures that aren't actually them. And like people hide behind no profile pictures that aren't their own that may portray that they are being a person of color when they're actually not. And obviously, there are different extremes to this. I don't consider someone using a gif of a black person as engaging in digital blackface. But there are plenty of examples of digital blackface online, especially on Twitter that can just kind of That now you can just kind of observe now that you know what it is and like a little bit about it. If you just kind of go on Twitter, you'll see this a lot more often. It just happened to me this weekend where somebody was like arguing in favor of people of color or something. And I just kept asking them, are you a person of color? Like, are you are you talking for people of color? Are you a person of color? Because that that changes the dynamic of the of the situation because you're telling me a person of color about how a person of color would feel. But if you're not a person of color, then how are you going to tell me how another person of color would feel? Do you, do you know what I mean? It's like it, it's that. And it's like they didn't have their actual picture of their profile. So I didn't know if they were white or black or Mexican or whatever or Asian or whatever. Again, it's like questionable their race. So it it's a form of like digital blackface. Mostly if it's obviously if it's relating to black, but just this is just a problem on Twitter in general. Anyway, that's that's a completely different rampage. But so the interview, which I don't know why, but I just kind of knew they weren't going to really be an ally to black people or people of color in general. I don't know the race of the podcast host, but from her profile picture, she's extremely white passing. So it just rubs me the wrong way that there are just like three white people or two white people and a white passing person going that are going to talk about cultural appropriation and racism without a person of color present? Like, how can you really determine if something is offensive to people of color without a person of color present? How are we going to have a conversation about cultural appropriation and racism if you're not having oppressed people a part of the conversation? I've literally had this happen to me once. It was like, when I'm in a conversation with three men and I'm a woman and we're talking about abortion and they are all three debating abortion as if they would ever need an abortion in their life. <laughs> and no one's asking for my opinion as a woman. They're just all three debating this conversation. So that's kind of another perspective or and not to be To give like a non-political example, it would be like if you were in the kitchen and your family was all trying to determine what they wanted for dinner or like what the family wanted for dinner. And instead of asking you for your input, they just kept saying, I think Jessica wants pizza. Well, I'm pretty sure Jessica wants pizza, but I'm pretty sure Jessica would want pizza if she was a part of this conversation and you're just not present for this conversation. They just like spoke for you. So that's kind of what it feels like to have a conversation about whether something is cultural appropriation or racist without a person of color present because it's just How can you really determine that? So that's just kind of another thing that rubbed me the wrong way because if they wanted to clear their name about whether or not they were doing digital blackface or cultural appropriation, it would have been the correct or I guess, decent thing to do if you actually got a person of color's perspective and insight and not just like one of your friends, but someone who can really give you an unbiased, marginalized perspective on the claim. So already this entire discussion towards, I think, 20 minutes into the episode, if you guys want to check it out on the Health is Hell podcast. So about 20 minutes into the episode, it made me feel some type of way, (laughs) Because my immediate reaction was, I know these white bitches, <laughs> excuse my language, but the Kitchen shouldn't have a problem with language. Am I right? Like their whole book is fuck shit, fucking bitch, this, that, whatever. So I, I can say bitch, right? So my first thought was like, I know these fucking white bitches aren't going to sit here and talk about racism without a person of color present. I was literally fucking like, are you guys serious? Like, it was just like. You guys aren't helping your case at all. Like, literally, just at all. It, anyway, again, I don't know if the host is a person of color, she is Jewish. So from what I concluded from her podcast, and I tried to find a concrete answer, concrete answer of if Jewish means person of color. So I asked you guys on Twitter because I'm ignorant about this discussion or this topic. I've never even had this thought in my head about whether Jewish people were people of color. It just I've never needed to answer that question. So I asked Twitter, you know, to kind of get, you know, a more educated opinion And that started a whole ass riot in my mentions. I just had several people in my mentions uh, arguing about whether Jewish people are people of color and it turned into this big, huge riot and I didn't really get a concrete answer. So for the sake of not offending anyone, I'm just going to call her white passing and I'm not going to call her a person of color. I'm just going to say white passing. I'm not going to call her white. I don't want to be offensive. This is my middle ground (laughs) and I do hope to form an actual concrete opinion because apparently this is something that rubs a lot of people the wrong way but I just want to make sure that I able I'm able to form an educated opinion so I'm just going to say white passing. Anyway, so the host of the show admits that she grew up in like Manhattan, which if you don't know, it's like very very expensive to live there and she went to, you know, like private school and like grew up very affluent. So I find her opinion on cultural appropriation a little mm, you know but she is jewish and from asking twitter it's like i said very controversial whether jewish people are white or considered white and it is a way bigger conversation than i'm going to dive into but i just will say white passing just to be safe and make sure i'm not offending anyone because that's not my intention and i am ignorant i'm a dumb bitch i'm uneducated on this topic so i hope this doesn't offend anyone and i'm very sorry But something that also just was like, ugh, like annoying about Matt, which is one of the creators, he said that a lot of people, you know, came to their defense. I mean, of course they did. You were a white couple, which they're not a couple anymore, but they're a white team and a society built on white supremacy. So of course, you're going to have a lot of support. Of course, you're going to get a New York Times bestseller list. Of course, people are going to call people of color crazy and say that we just that we're just misplacing our anger or whatever and Matt says in his little fake ass hood voice that he does (laughs) and he's like oh I sold drugs in Houston as if that kind of gave him like a black card like oh wait you sold drugs you're a drug dealer you sold drugs in Houston fuck never mind here's your fucking black card here let me open my fucking wallet and give you my black card fucking sorry this totally gives you a fucking pass to sit here and speak on behalf of whether your ass just totally t- appropriated someone else's culture because you sold fucking drugs in Houston. So you're so fucking hood, Matt. Like, I don't know. It just rubbed me the wrong way. I hate when fucking people do that because you don't need to do that. Like, you, t- like, there is so there's so many better ways to defend yourself than I sold drugs in Houston and my boys. And he was just like, my boys or my people were like, you want me to handle this? You want me to talk about this? You want me to come to your defense, white boy? Like it just, (laughs) I'm sorry. It just rubbed me the fucking wrong way. It, It just was not, that is not how you defend yourself. Bro, like that is not. Like, who is your publicist? Fucking fire them. There are so many ways y'all could have got out of this and came out on top, but whoever fucking coached y'all on just to say you're a drug dealer and you're fucking or poor in LA, that was not the way to fucking defend your book, okay? Anyway, then Michelle goes on to say, you know, the reason that they received backlash was because when their book came out, this was a quote unquote unique time, a unique time in history. And Black Lives Matter, you know, just kind of started or, you know, was formed, even though it started in 2012. And she says that people didn't know where to put their anger. And let me be too, and I know I'm pretty heated because I hate talking about racism. I hate when white people talk about shit like this because it's like you couldn't fathom what it feels like to have something so personal to your culture be talked about by people who can't fucking get it. And I know people don't get this, but it would be like me sitting there talking about your childhood. Like I would where would I know how to fucking even begin about your childhood? Like we might have similarities in our childhood. We might have fucking similar ass birth charts where we're literally the same fucking twin babies. But like I still would know where to start because I'm not you. I would have no idea idea what it's like to be you. Like you would have no idea what it's like to be black. So why are you guys having this conversation without a black person? That's what just, anyway, I'm sorry. (laughs) But let me be 200% clear here, Michelle, as if I'm talking to you. (laughs) Black people didn't misplace their anger. Black people knew where to put their anger and they put it towards you for a reason. This isn't some unique time in history. This is our lives. (laughs) where the stigma with the word thug gets you killed when you're black. Because this isn't some unique protest time when Black Lives Matter came out. This wasn't unique. We have been Getting killed for decades for a race, for looking like thugs. We've been protesting this shit. It's not a unique time in history. Like she says, like, oh, it's just we got backlash because it's a unique time in history. No. And what just rubbed me. I know I keep saying what rubbed me the wrong way because a lot rubbed me the wrong way. But I think this was the thing that just rubbed me the most, even though Matt, you know, his drug dealer card pissed me off pretty well. But the thing that I think just got me the wrong rubbed me the wrong way the most was when Michelle says that they don't have time for basically the backlash. She said they don't give a fuck and that's their favorite thing to say. They don't give a fuck about whether people of color like their book or not. They have no problem profiting from it. They are just going to continue living their lives in their white bubble and just the way that they were talking about people of color and their outrage and their criticism of their book is just very dismissive and they didn't care about at all about our perspective and it was just I'm an individual and I sell drugs, blah, 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 blah. And they say, you know, jokingly, of course, but this is like, like what I said, what rubbed me the wrong way, like the most is that they have, you know, a whiteboard in their office of people who critique them and they aren't around anymore is like, quote unquote, what they said, you know, the people that came out against them, you know, aren't around anymore because I think Jezebel wrote about them some article, I guess that was very fake, and not real and had a lot of misinformation in it. And so they jokingly said like they have this whiteboard of people who keep critiquing them and crossing them off and they just aren't relevant anymore. And it's just very insensitive and doesn't address why people and they never addressed why people are upset at all. Just, I'm a victim. Feel bad for me. We're poor white people who shop at Target and we sell drugs. It's like just a very interesting interview. And again, these are their own words. I'm not twisting anything. I'm not trying to fit a narrative. I literally listened to them speak for an hour to try to give them some type of benefit of the doubt coming into this pod- podcast. And granted, this is just one interview with them. So maybe they have a better interview. I fucking hope to fucking God. But like, Really? They just they just said all this shit. Like basically what I said rubbed me the wrong way the most is like Michelle was literally just like, I don't care about the cri- criticism anymore. I don't give a fuck is what she said. And like, I don't have time to really care about what these black fucking bitches are saying about my fucking butt. Basically, like, I don't care anymore. Like, say what you want. We already went through this. Are you racist bullshit? So we're not entertaining it anymore. And I just think that that's just like such a privilege to just be like, fuck it. I'm just not going to entertain what you guys are saying anymore because that's really hurting me. Like, sorry. (laughs) And another thing that's important to point out is that they said that they have all this support and all their Q&As were sold out and they had all this great success. And it's like, okay, great. So you have a team rallied behind you to support you and call you and tell you that you're right. But people of color have nothing but each other. We don't have the luxury of getting mainstream media coverage to explain why we're upset and why we're outraged. And we hardly get book tours and Q&As, especially in the vegan community. It's the lack of acknowledgement of their own privilege that kind of annoys me. And I haven't listened to their podcast. They say that they have a podcast. um, I don't know what it's called and I'm not going to promote it. But they say that they've had critics on their podcast where they've hashed out this, you know, hash this all out or whatever. So if you guys want to check that out, I couldn't find it just from scrolling through it really fast. But like I said, I scrolled through their podcast real, real fast to try to see if I could find anything like like a title that jumped out that was mostly looked like it was related to, you know, their controversy and I couldn't find it. But I really was looking, like I said, for like five seconds. So I'm 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 sure it's there, but I don't know. I didn't see it. They say that, you know, no one is quoting them in their criticism of them. So I made sure to do just that in this episode. I want everyone to know that these are their own words, their own accounts, their own story without well, there is bias because clearly I had. Bias throughout the whole episode. Normally, if you guys check out my other podcasts, like my Impossible Whopper episode, I was very unbiased in that. I tried to be unbiased in it as much as I can, but this, I just couldn't keep my fucking mouth shut. I don't know what it is today. I'm feeling feisty, but. Anyway, but I still have yet to hear even one response to their criticism besides that they receive death threats and rape threats, which is horrible and disgusting. And there's no excuse for that type of behavior at all. But this is just something that people of color grow through every day. We get raped and death threats from our own police and get labeled thugs. (laughs) I was hoping, you know, to gain some type of understanding and respect from these people because I don't want to have resentment. I was hoping that I would find some type of we're sorry. The book was already called The Kitchen. We educated ourselves. We realized I was wrong and we, you know, we educated ourselves and we fucking donate to kids in fucking Africa. Like, you know, clearly I would love to see that kind of happy ending for this. And I was hoping to get that, but that's definitely not what I got. But all I got, all I got was I don't give a fuck about your opinion fuck this and fuck that. I remember Michelle saying, I hope you think we're gonna curse you out if you reach out to us, which is a direct quote from Michelle. She said that they don't reach out to us for comments because they are afraid that they are going to get shut down or curse them out, which is good. I hope they think that. So what I'm not understanding if you believe you're so unproblematic and so innocent in all of this is why are you telling people that you hope they fear you? That's just not a response I give to a marginalized group of people who are offended. Even if I thought that they were wrong, I just just still don't want to diminish, I guess, their feelings because, you know, they're still valid. And when I started to search, you know, for the opinions of people of color on Thug Kitchen, something that I noticed that happens with a lot of black people in particularly is that our feelings aren't ever humanized, I guess is the word. So many white people have just not just don't have sympathy for people of color, I guess. And they can't fathom why they may, why we may feel a certain way. It's just their opinion. And that's it. They can only really see things from their perspective a lot of the times. For example, when I was searching for, you know, opinions to all other people of color for this podcast, I came across this YouTuber from this woman of color who started off the video literally saying how sad she was today because, you know, she's an activist, a black activist, and she's involved directly with constantly indulging herself and the impression and systemic racism that black people face on a daily basis. And when you are, for lack of better words, I guess, woke all the time as a person of color especially it's very taxing and that has a lot of heavy energy or weight on your brain and it just I can't really put it into words but it's just painful to just constantly be indulging yourself in stories and research and history of black people because it's just very painful and it hurts and it's Heartbreaking. So she started the video kind of confessing that she hardly ever cries, but she was having a fucked up day and she felt really burnt out and burdened today. And it's something to keep in mind whenever you're giving your opinion about the oppression of people of color. And I'm guilty of this as well sometimes. We just need to be careful with the way we convey our opinions to people because. It can be taxing and lead to triggering lasting effects in the minds of oppressed beings. So to move into you know kind of my own personal opinion, dissecting all of this, I just wanted to give the backstory of the book, kind of give you guys a little bit of tutorial of what they are like as people, um, and just to kind of segue, I guess, into what my personal opinion is, is that, and I guess just I play like devil's advocate of my own opinion, which is the book is problematic. If you assume that the book is mocking black people, then you are just as racist because you know, you're assuming that black people with black people always use cuss words all the time. So let's just settle that whole controversy or that devil's advocate opinion of Just because they are using slang words and, you know, fucking bad language or whatever. I'm assuming that they're supposed to be black. So therefore, I'm the racist. So let's just clear that up fast because that's not even close to the truth. Like, it's totally different to say, yeah, we should call this book Vegan Kitchen or The Fucking Vegan Kitchen. Or they could have just dropped, you know, all these f-bombs and did whatever foul language they wanted to and that would have been totally fine but they specifically used black slang and chose to name their book thug kitchen like something that I think a lot of people don't know is something that's called coded language and coded language has been around since oh, like I would say like the 60s And coded language, if you guys don't know, describes phrases that are targeted often to a specific group of people or like idea that eventually the circumstances of that phrase is used or is like blended into that phrase's meaning. So like basically coded language, coded words and phrases are often used, especially, you know, like with realtors, for example. They'll use Phrases like good area or bad area or developing area, which if you're a person of color, you know that a developing area usually means that there's white people moving in. It's developing, you know, to be more white. And these are coded terms that have been used for decades now in history, like good meaning white, bad meaning black. It's like a way to have a conversation and code almost. So, for example, with thug, thug has been used very, very very often in our society to describe, especially black men. And this can be black men, you know, committing a crime or black men just existing and doing nothing wrong. So it's very easy to use words such as thug to pay to like play into stereotypes without outright mentioning that specific group. It gives the user like a type of leeway and it allows people to critique the behavior while not criticizing, you know, the entire group of people. And we see this a lot in our society and I've talked about this a lot before, but I always say we live in a society that is full of racists who don't want to be called racist. So back in the day, you know, you could just flat out say nigger and fucking coon and porch monkey or whatever slur for black people. And it was okay because we weren't seen, you know, as human. We were literally not even considered to be a whole person. Now in the 21st century, we're saying the N-word is considered, you know, to not be a social norm. Racist men are now able to say, I don't hate black people. I just hate thugs or criminals. It's like it gives them some type of leeway and it's allowing them to still be racist without racially defending or without racially describing an entire group of people, even though that is still what they're doing. It's still a generalization of black people. Another like example of this is like back in back in like 2016, you know, when Trump did his like infamous, notorious racist speech against Mexicans, when he said, you know, Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're sending people that have lots of problems and they're bringing in drugs and crimes and rapists. (laughs) And so he's basically saying, hey, look, I said, I don't think all of them are bad or rapist or whatever, so give me some kind of leeway to continue using racist stereotypes against Mexicans and immigrants, because I'm not talking in biological terms about Mexicans. I'm not saying every Mexican is born a rapist or a criminal, it's not biological, but I'm still saying that a lot of them are. So that's coded language. You're still able to be racist without saying that it's biologically happening to all Mexicans or all black people. It's only a certain group of them, but it's still used as a generalization and a stereotype for all Mexican people. It's coded language. So thug in particular is supposed to mean, you know, violence or a violent person or a criminal But as we know, over time, it has been used too often refer to black people and especially black men. And it began to carry its own connotation. And, you know, this idea that black people are thugs. We saw this during the Baltimore, the Baltimore protests, you know, when Freddie Gray was killed by police, a group of black people were protesting and showing outrage is considered, you know, a group of thugs or criminals looting and rioting over some nigger that died, you know, sorry, (laughs) but, you know, like it's considered to be like, you know, like when a big group of black people are doing anything or showing any type of outrage or anger, it's those thugs are protesting in the streets. It's supposed to be seen as, you know, a group of people exercising their right to protest over, you know, an innocent person that's killed versus rioting and looting and thugs, you know. And even, you know, the mayor of Baltimore and our and the president at the time, Obama, used these coded languages to describe people who are hurting and have had enough. And we have seen countless protests where people are tired of being killed and oppressed. And when you shake up, it's like when you shake up a Soda bottle, and it's you know it's going to eventually you know explode, and you're going to get some type of reaction from people. And when you continuously oppress people, they are going to explode, of, of course. And for example, if a group of white people you know walked into you know the state capitol building like a couple of days ago with guns, and if you pay attention to the difference starting now, you'll see you'll see the difference. They'll they'll use words like rowdy to describe white protest and white. people doing protests and they had guns and stuff like that and they were able to just storm a Capitol building. Whereas when a group of black people are protesting, it's they, you know, so like when white people are protesting, they use, you know, rowdy, not thug, not gang, not animals, not like criminals. It's like you're rowdy. And some other type of coded language, you know, just for context is like urban and like inner city and like black on black crime. All of those are examples of coded language. So that's the problem with thug kitchen, because in society, Thug is used as another word for black, like thug and gangster and urban and hood and threatening and suspicious figure. These are all coded language used for black people. It's used to keep stereotypes of black people alive. Like clearly they aren't going to come out and call the book like Coon Kitchen, y'all. Like it's coded language. Thug Kitchen always The Kitchen allows them to keep this persona of color that is absent in their skin. Like it allows them to have this imagination that is coming from a person of color's perspective because you're using a word that is used to oppress people of color, but you were two middle-aged white people living in LA. Like it is, it's not okay. (laughs) That is why so many people get this book, not realizing that these are people, these are white people, they assume that they are black, not because they are cussing, but because they are using black slang and Ebonics in their book. And that's not to say that, you know, thug hasn't been used to describe white people. Sure it has, but it isn't associated with white people. And that is a key difference. Thug is used to describe all black people. It was used when Richard Sherman, he played for the Seattle Seahawks and they had just won this game that was going to take them to the Super Bowl. And when he gave the speech after the game and he didn't use like any cuss words or anything, he was just, you know, kind of talking, you know, like player talk at his opponents. And, you know, he was just kind of, you know, like end of the game and hyped up on, you know, his win. And he was like talking, you know, very not cocky, but, you know, he's very like pumped up from his win and he was kind of talking about his opponents. And because of his skin color and, you know, because that he had dreads, he was immediately labeled a thug by mainstream media and by white people in general. And all he was doing was having like a little exit game post rant and people immediately labeled him a thug because he is black. They wouldn't say that about a white guy. People are not going to call a white guy a thug. And that's what blows my mind that people don't see the issue with this book. They have a whole ass best selling book with a word that has been used to oppress black people, a word that has been used as a justification to kill black people, Oh, he was a thug. So, you know, that's why he got shot. They are done. So many examples of that literally happening and no one sees a problem with this. Well, let me correct myself. People of color see a problem with this, but... People do not value the opinions of people of color because we're always complaining. Like we're labeled as complainers and blah, 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 blah. Like I was pointing out earlier about, you know, how Matt, the creator, was upset that bigger companies were profiting off of, you know, their catchphrase that they came up with and capitalizing on it, it's the exact same thing as what they did to black people by using their slang and using their words of oppression to sell their book to millions of people. Whether or not Matt and Michelle would have gotten this book deal if they were black is literally debatable. I mean, you can, I mean, like, can you imagine a black guy pitching a book called Thug Kitchen to a bunch of uppity ass publishing companies? Like, you can't, like, it, it just wouldn't, happen I mean things are changing now and black people are now kind of getting a little bit more attention but even now people are still using that as a way to feel good about themselves like oh like let's give this black guy a book and I bought it from him like I'm so trendy and I'm so like accepting like I'm so great like I don't know I'm not complaining that black people are getting opportunities, but now even it's still used as the way to like make white people feel better about themselves instead of thinking that the actual art and thing that the black person created is beautiful. It's more of used as a way to make them seem less not inclusive. You know what I mean? Something that's important to keep in mind is that white people tend to have access to some of the more larger platforms for their activism. And so their vision of oppression, like we couldn't get our book out to different publishers because we cuss you know that was kind of like their problem that I mentioned earlier is that they were having a problem finding a publisher that wanted to publish their book because it had so many um offensive words and cuss words in it so their that's their version of oppression that they went through it's kind of one of the only forms of oppression they're really going to go through And that form of oppression is extremely different than the person of color's version of oppression, which looks more of like I couldn't even get those publishers to even take me seriously at all with a vegan cookbook called The Kitchen, you know? So I think one of the biggest forms of privilege that white people don't ever really think about is that their worldview and their opinions and their responses to things tend to be naturalized as reality. We live in a world full of white people, so their version of things and their viewpoints is what is seen as rational. And black people who tend to be offended by certain actions, our point of view is often seen as less than or insignificant because it's not the mainstream view it's not the view that's being pushed often so yeah the creators of the kitchen and white people are going to co-sign the book naturally and naturally think that black people are just overreacting I mean like how could they care that how could they relate how could they understand unless they really try to it takes a lot of discipline and listening and unlearning right unlearning. It takes a lot of unlearning to actually realize that just because your viewpoint may be co-signed as the norm by society doesn't mean that it's correct. So it's important to remember that veganism as a movement has been capitalized and corporatized, as um, I think AFCO put it in one of the podcasts I was listening to. Veganism has, as a movement, has been corporatized by white people, as a social justice movement in particularly, it has been corporatized. And so you have a lot of white vegan organizations, such as, you know, Thug Kitchen, that are able to be making money and profiting off of veganism. And a lot of people of color, again, as AFCO, I think, said, a lot of people of color are not able to compete with how mainstream and how big white vegans can be because their world and our activism spaces are designed to promote white people. It's not designed to push the perspectives of people of color. So oftentimes the voices and opinions of black people and people of color in general get drowned out. So it's important to realize that just because a white person says, no, wait, this is what I meant by this. I didn't mean thug kitchen to mean black. I meant thug kitchen to mean gangster. Like that doesn't mean that that's correct. That doesn't mean that, oh, just kidding. You're right. I'm wrong. That doesn't change the word thug and what that represents to the African-American community. It doesn't always mean, you know, that it's all of a sudden okay just because that's not how you meant it. And yes, the creators can say, wait, we didn't mean, like I said, thug to mean black people, which again, I highly recommend researching coded language. But you also have to remember that Thug Kitchen came out during a time when black people are being killed and shot down and slaughtered in the streets. For looking like thugs. I mean, like they pointed out earlier, this came out during the time of Black Lives Matter, where it was very every it seemed like every time we turned on the news, another black person was getting killed by police violence. And that didn't just stop happening. It just started happening so often that we just don't even cover it anymore. Kind of like school shootings, how those happen, I think like they said once a day. Well, probably not now, but like normally not during a pandemic, we have like a school shooting a day. So now or a mass shooting or something a day, like people just don't even really take it seriously anymore. It's just another news story. So that's kind of what happened, you know, with black people. And it's really sad. So you know, like I said, we are getting shot and slaughtered and gunned down and chased down and just existing in the streets or in in general. And just because we may look a certain way or look like thugs, we get killed for that shit. Like, I don't even think people really realize how heavy and how horrible that is. Like, we're not talking about we get called a name. It's straight up death, death sentence for looking like a thug and you named your book it. It's just fucking bizarre, you know? And to ignorantly call your cookbook where you were two 30 year old white people who were profiting off a of book black oppression to make a hipster white vegan cookbook, you've got to have some kind of accountability for that. You like really do. And then now you have these two white people who don't give a fuck, who take the word thug trying to be funny and hip when in fact it literally gets people killed. It's not funny. I mean, it's expected, honestly, that people won't care about the fact that they use the word thug, but it's also still hurtful and insensitive. Something that afco I know I just keep saying that because I want to give credit to her, but something that She pointed out in this podcast episode that I was listening to with her was what I was listening to of her a few months ago that just popped up in my head is that a year or so after, you know, the the kitchen cookbook comes out, after tons of black activists were coming out against the book and sharing why they thought the book was offensive. Instead of giving those black activists, you know, a platform chance to share their point of view on a major platform like the New York Times, the New York Times chose to highlight Thug kitchen and completely dismiss all the backlash and outrage from the black community. It kind of just goes into my other podcast episode um, that I made a couple of months ago about profiting off of black people and corporations that don't give a shit about us. Like how McDonald's profits off, you know, putting black people in their ads to seem cool and relatable and hip to black people and, you know, to like be inclusive and whatnot. And what do they do for the black community? Fucking absolutely nothing. They just use our faces and use our black celebrities to try to sell us carcinogenic foods and place their fast food joints in our communities that keep us unhealthy and obese. It's so easy so easy to take black culture and take black oppression and take black slang and take black language and turn it into something cool and hip to make money off of it and that's why it's so important that people of color feel represented in the vegan community and that's why I'm always pushing for poc perspectives in the vegan community because then stuff like this doesn't happen people see the word thug kitchen now hopefully in a blog and hopefully we are able to stop it before it becomes something super big because once it becomes mainstream you know like how how mainstream thug kitchen is right now and how it's a new york times bestseller it's way easy to dimi- dismiss the concerns of people of color because now you have whiteness on your side and whiteness in america is extremely powerful. It'll overpower POC opinions and lives time and time again. So it's important that with issues like this, we don't ignore people of color. We uplift their voices and we share their perspectives. So I'm going to close out this podcast because I feel um, like I've made my point and I'm done talking about this and I don't really want to talk about it again. (laughs) But like I said, if you choose to still support the book, at least now, you know, um, I haven't been able to really see a black vegan kind of explain why they are upset about the podcast. I mean, about the book. So hopefully this will serve us some kind of realization or some kind of clarification of why black people have been feel hurt by the book, especially as a black vegan perspective. Because it's so hard for people of color to get their perspective, especially in the black, in the vegan community heard. So I appreciate you guys for taking the time to listen to this podcast. I'm sorry that I was so, what's the word, passionate. It's just one, it's one of those topics that I just couldn't really keep my mouth shut about. Again, I don't think that these people are awful or deserve death or anything like that. But I definitely do think that they deserve to have some kind of accountability. And I would like for them to acknowledge that the word thug should have never been used. But from what I've seen, I can't find that. I encourage you guys to support POC cookbooks, please. Vegan cookbooks, please. Um, I I can only think of Sweet Potato Souls cookbook Um, off the top of my head. But if you ask me, because um, I'm being put on the spot right now, I can't think of anyone else's. And Cheap Lazy Vegan has a cookbook as well. If you guys um, are interested in some POC cookbooks and they're all vegan, I I do recommend those too. But if you ask me later, maybe on Twitter or something, if you guys don't follow me, it's at Tyra the Taurus, Taurus like the zodiac sign. And I'll be able to answer that on Instagram. It's Tyra the Taurus. And on um. Twitter it's Tyra the Taurus so if you guys ask me I'll be able to link you guys some pretty good cookbooks that you guys can check out besides the kitchen because it's just it's it's not okay they've made their money they've had their fame they've had their time I wish them the best that's cool for them but I really really hope that we're able to give more people of color representation in the vegan community because we really, really don't have that. Anyway, I promise that I will try to pick another. I I can't even promise that. Every podcast episode ends up being heavy and passionate. <laughs> it's just who I am as a person. I I don't like I don't know. I, I'm just ranting. I need to shut the fuck up and, and go. But if you guys like this podcast, please rate it on Apple podcast. I, I don't actually know how it works because <laughs> I use Spotify. I'm sorry. <laughs> but if you guys could um, rate it on Apple, that would literally mean the world to me. Um, if you hated it, just kidding. Pretend like I didn't say anything. Um, And please follow me on Spotify. Any kind of like or interaction or a follow or a rate or a a review helps the podcast so much Um, get to like the top of search results. And the more I'm able to push people of color perspectives in the vegan community, the more vegans we can create. And I think that's really dope. And I hope to diversify the vegan community as much as I possibly can. (laughs) With that being said, I hope that you guys have a good night, a good morning, a good afternoon, a good fucking bye. (laughs) I'm I'm gonna go. Bye.